0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series held on March 13, 2019, What Your Treasurers Really Need to Know About Tax Reform. The panelists for the webcast were Rebecca Lee, a principal in PwC's International Tax Services Group, Pat Brown, a principal in PwC's International Tax Policy Group, Marco Fiocadori, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Group, and Robert Vetteretti, a managing director in PwC's Financial and Treasury Management Consulting Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of what companies are actually prioritizing in response to tax reform and deeper dives into the impact of the new interest deduction limitation of Section 163J and the impact of the new base erosion and anti-abuse tax, or BEAT. Have a listen. Since you come
1: to us from having lived in the real world for a substantial period of time, what are companies actually prioritizing in response to tax reform? Like, I think this is interesting that we did a similar webcast to this almost exactly a year ago where we talked about this is what we think people are going to do in the next year. and I'll be candid, we weren't necessarily entirely correct. We laid out all these strategic initiatives that organizations will do to re- fundamentally restructure their, their external leverage, to, to restructure their internal pooling. Well, you know what? Like, tax reform took a lot of time, energy, and resources to even yep. do the basic blocking and tackling.
2: Yeah, look, I would say uh, what, what people are doing right now, at least from my own experience, certainly, is a lot of digesting. Um, you know, we have seen round after round of guidance. Obviously, the guidance that's been coming out has very generally been in proposed form, which means people are reading what's come out. They're figuring out what it means as best they can. They're doing a lot of modeling. And then they're, you know, effectively iterating, well, what if we're able to get this change to this reg as it goes final? Um, What impact would that have? What if I don't get this change? How do I think about those things? So there's a lot of that digesting and iterating going on right now. And I would say, Um, Picking up on some of Rob's points again, you know, sometimes changes to structures around treasury are things that have to happen over a multi-year period. So you're not going to want to leap into that quickly or ill-advisedly. You're going to want to be thoughtful about it. And right now, people don't know what the rules are yet. Right. To a very large extent, we don't know what the rules are. Um, So I think what we're seeing a lot of in the marketplace, at least again, from my own experience, is a fair amount of hesitation, a lot of brainstorming. Mm -hmm. What might I do? You know, if, if if the facts break out this particular way, uh, if my facts break out a particular way, or the rigs come out a particular way, this is what I'm intending to do, this is what I think I might do. Um, but it's really early stages, right? I mean, it's we're like in the second inning, right, of a baseball <laughs> game, and, that, and I think it's worth remembering that for all of us, because of course, we all want to move quickly, right? We all want to do things quickly. Well, it's tax reform, it's almost two years old. Why haven't we moved more quickly? Well, because it's really complicated, and because we don't yet know what the rules are.
3: And it's funny you say that, using the baseball analogy, um, because if you asked me that question, and I think the majority of the people I interact with in the market, they would have said, well, it's been around for a year or two, we're in the seventh or eighth inning, (laughs) right? And and so it's an interesting, probably, you know, uh, knowledge gap that probably exists in the market for the average, I think, treasury professional.
2: Well, and I think for people who are non-lawyers or non-tax lawyers, there's an incomplete understanding of just the outsized role that the regulator plays in the tax process. You know, tax regulations, because tax is itself such a complex subject, the regulator plays such an enormous role in what the ultimate rules are, right? Uh, and I think in other areas of the law, you don't see that, at least not to that same extent. And so even though Congress did its work and signed off, and the president signed off on tax reform, you know, a year, a year and a half ago, almost a year and a half ago now there's still an enormous amount that has to be filled in. And that's by design. That's the way the system works with respect to taxation.
1: Speaking of areas that need to be filled in in more detail, we'll spend a couple of minutes taking a deeper dive on the interest deduction limitation rules. Uh, And Pat, I love the way that you teed it up of the outsized role of the IRS as a regulator in this space. This is an area where we have proposed regulations, uh, many features of which were viewed as being somewhat controversial. So, a lot of moving pieces still here on the interpretation of the statute, uh, but that being said i don 't think it holds up having effective conversations with folks in your organization 's treasury functions about what they sort of ought to be thinking about in the space
2: yeah, no, I would agree, Rebecca. I think look, there are a couple of flaws here one is. Um, this slide is primarily focused around Section one hundred and sixty three J, right? And if you think about prior to, sorry, I used a code section. Rob. No, it's okay. <laughs> I love um, that one slide. If I think about right, exactly. If I think about the world prior to tax reform, if I were, if a company was borrowing in the United States from third parties, you know, unless you had a really, really extreme situation where you're extremely highly levered. The interest on the debt was deductible, basically without limitation, right? It was just sort of the world that we lived in. 163 j changed, changed all that, right? Now there's a limit on your ability to deduct interest. And as the slide here says, it's 30% of EBITDA uh, over the next five years and then drops down to 30% of EBIT, which obviously for a lot of companies is going to be a significant differentiator. And indeed, there's already lobbying going on to try and save the DA, as people say, uh, <laughs> so that we don't uh, drop to that, to that lower limit. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a new world. And, you know, to the point about the role of the regulator versus the role of Congress in enacting the statute, you know, the regulator is not going to be able to change the fact that there's now a 30% limit. Mm-hmm. It's on an EBITDA basis. It applies to interest that's paid to unrelated third parties. And so this is an area where you can actually start thinking about modeling in this space. Okay, well, how much debt should I have in the U.S.? And I think the other thing that's worth mentioning although we don't touch on it directly on this slide, it's sort of, it's, I would say, kind of in the penumbra of all of these points on the slide. You know, a big change that happened in tax reform that we don't talk a lot about, but it's really easy to model, is the rate drop mm-hmm. from 35 to 21%. So, you know, as a tax person within certainly a U.S.-based multinational, the incentive to have all of your debt in the U.S., before tax reform was enormous, the rate was so much higher. The benefit of that interest expense was so much more, right? When the rate drops from 35 to 21, you now have a very different set of calculations to run. Now the U.S. rate may, in some cases, be significantly, or at least lower, maybe not significantly lower. And, of course, you have to layer on state taxes and things like that. So, but these sets of calculations are things that I think we can look at today and really ask the question, do I have a 163J problem? If I don't have one now, am I going to have one starting in twenty twenty two unless someone saves the DA? Uh, what does it what what is the tax benefit now at a twenty one percent rate of having my debt in the u s versus a thirty five percent rate? And frankly, questions like if I take debt that is today in the u s and move it outside the u s, without necessarily limiting to what the rate is outside the US, do I have enough tax base? Can I monetize that deduction, right? For most US companies, you don't tend to think about those questions within the US because you've tended to have a significant amount of income in the US. Whereas you might say, well, I'd like to move my debt to France, but I may not have a tax base in France to support that interest deduction. So these are not necessarily things that a Treasury Department may think about, obviously. But we as tax can add that to the conversation. You know, if it al- always before we would tell you to put all your debt in the U.S., that may not be the right answer anymore. There are limitations, 163J, and the benefits may not be as big as they were before. Right.
3: And that's, you know, so from, you know, Treasury perspective, you know, the first thing I'm thinking about is do I have an opportunity to reduce my cost of debt? Yeah, right. So all of a yep. sudden, where you said always oh, have your you know, debt in the US before, now the game has changed. You know, And when I'm talking about debt or issuing bonds and those kinds of things, it's not like turning on and off my CP program right. or changing how much I draw my revolver. Right. right. But it's things that are in the works for a long period of time. I got to think about my debt maturity ladder, the currency mix, and all those things. Yep. Plus the craziness of Brexit going on what's going on with European interest rates or even other parts of the world and the dynamics of China or, or other aspects of, of Asia. Right. So to me, this is a great joint modeling exercise about a what-if scenario for overall capital structure and what that debt profile looks like yep. and which is the right answer for different facts and circumstances, whether it's related to the tax regulations themselves or the constraints that are around that, but as well as the company's growth agenda you know, so if I'm going to go do an acquisition, well, how am I actually going to be funding that? Right. So one is my macro funding strategy. And then the other aspect is, all right, how does that affect all the debt pushdowns that I do and where I have my liquidity? Because if I change a pooling structure, or I change things like that, it takes time. Maybe I need, before I have just a basic cash management bank across Europe. Now I need someone with more of a corporate finance desk that I never really evaluated before. So do I have to share the wallet with yet another bank? Or how do I need to think about that? So those are the things that go through my head as you talk about this topic alone. And people don't have to come up with an answer, but they should come up with an outline of these what-if scenarios jointly between tax and treasury.
1: And as we pivot to the example, one of the things I feel remiss if we don't talk about a little bit of financial statement accounting as well So you've got the treasurer's agenda, you have the tax agenda where the opportunities may be. The first thing that pops to mind is we think about, I can take some of my debt and push it into some of my local jurisdictions if I have the tax base to absorb it. Is, are things like, well, if I were thinking about borrowing in the eurozone anyway, because rates are more favorable there, maybe I am happier doing that in a euro functional CFC yep. and taking something that would have created transactional gain or loss and turning it into translational gain or loss. Or for that matter, maybe I'm unhappy about it because I was relying on in net investment hedging treatment. So we've we've sort of circled up some of the people you need to have at the table, but maybe not all of them. When we think about things like changing your financing structure yeah
2: no i would agree with that and of course rob would be a much uh, better expert on this but another party to these conversations presumably is going to be someone representing the lenders how do the lenders feel about moving the debt around you know so you know in a lot of cases u.s companies would have the debt at at the top of the house for a lot of reasons one of which was the lenders were more comfortable with the debt at the top of the house, Absolutely. right? So that's a factor in this as well. So I'll just cover this example very quickly. Uh, this is really just intended to give a, a you know, very straightforward example of how 163J operates. And I think the thing that I would emphasize here is um, 163J, as opposed to some of the other provisions we're going to talk about, actually operates on your net interest expense. So to the extent you have interest income, now this example doesn't actually show it, but you can see there on the right-hand side, we tick through you know, where it says U.S. parent interest income. In this example, the U.S. parent doesn't have interest income. But the way 163J operates, it applies to, it limits you to 30% of your adjusted taxable income on your net interest expense. So that's a key point. When we talk about other provisions where interest is relevant, BEAT and guilty, for example, uh, which Marco touched on, those are not going to apply on a net basis. In some cases, there was a lot of discussion about those applying on a net basis, certainly in the case of BEAT. Um, but, you know, if I think about something like the guilty regime, if I increase the absolute amount of debt that I have in the U.S., that may have implications from an expense allocation mm-hmm. perspective, even if I have offsetting interest income. So we'll come back to this point when we talk about cash pooling, because I think this is an issue that can be relevant in the cash pooling context as well. But what this slide really shows, just to finish it off, is Well, I may have circumstances where, because of section 163J, I'm not going to be able to fully deduct my interest expense. I may therefore be asking the question should I think about shifting more of that debt down to the CFC in this example? Now, it's worth noting 163J also applies to CFCs. Proposed so, <laughs> Exactly, at least in the proposed regulations. Some of us think that's sort of a curious result uh, uh, based on what we thought Congress was trying to do, but 163J does apply there. Um, It is also worth noting, of course, that the United States is not the only lawmaker in the world. And so other countries will have limitations on the ability to deduct interest expense as well. So there's a lot to think about in going through this exercise. This example obviously only teases out some of the very high-level points. But as noted, you can end up with Section 163J effectively increasing the after-tax cost of your debt. And that's something to be aware of.
1: And since we've given it a pretty good teaser, Marco touching on the base erosion and anti-avoidance tax are one piece of our global minimum tax regime. Um, tell us a little bit about BEAT, as well as maybe, Rob, you can chime in on some of the things you're hearing and the thoughts that they mm-hmm. throw in mind.
4: So BEAT is base erosion and anti-avoidance tax. Um, the fancy name is, is really um, bringing bad news to US taxpayers as a result of effectively putting a minimum amount of tax that is determined with respect to an add back of certain um, related party payments, those payments that basically gave rise to deduction. Uh, I'll try not to quote code. No. <laughs> uh, but in, in essence, basically, you know, including interest expense that may go to foreign related parties, all sort of realm of intercompany expenses that would result in a deduction, whether it's a royalty expense, a service fee, Um, other expenses that effectively reduce the taxable income um, through a deduction and not through a cost of goods sold, um, they would result into a base erosion payment. And that base erosion payment basically uh, puts back um, on the liability of the US uh, an amount and that amount ultimately generates a 10% of what it's called modified taxable income. For treasurer, what's important, I think, is to appreciate that there are elements of the intra-group arrangements um, that ultimately allow you to move cash around and have consequences from a tax perspective from a U.S. outbound um, that result into a potentially increased
3: tax liability. Right. And that's, I mean, you know, again, where I start to think about those specific topical areas is you'll hear about a lot about in-house banks, yep. mm-hmm. right? So a lot of U.S. corporates are either have them, trying to expand on them, optimize them, because there's a phenomenal cost outplay, right? The concept of an in-house bank mm-hmm. is, I'm basically trying to recapture the margin I'm giving my banking partners. Mm-hmm. So if I do it provided a service internally, it's a lot of money. It's not a direct, um, you know, something that you're gonna see on a p l anywhere, but it's embedded in all the pricing I have with my, my bank. So whether it's pooling structures that are in place, Hobos, like payment on behalf of models. I have netting programs, right, where I have subsidiaries around the world just netting off all those payments so I don't have to make cross border payments and change the volumes on those. So there's some heavy operational areas that, and that also has some structural um, components as well. That as you talk about this concept, I want to know how much do I care and what are those facts and circumstances. You know that need to exist for me to care and
4: and this is a good example for example for, for us From your perspective typically I w- you would focus on the net aspect of the cash movement yep. um, From beat perspective is actually important. Also the gross amount so the balances that are resulting and netting each other potentially for cash purposes, but not for tax purposes, so uh, there are ongoing efforts to um, reconsider certain arrangements that have created these gross amounts from a tax perspective and really didn't translate into a significant net cash movement and potentially re-optimize on that. Um, Now with respect to BEAT, we have a slide that uh, identifies one areas of, um, I would say, relief uh, with respect to what constitutes a base erosion payment, is um, a qualified derivative, and I, there is a section number, but uh, I will not mention. <laughs> is that 59A A-H, yeah, by the yeah. way?
3: <laughs>
4: but it is effectively a <laughs> way, right? A quick study, is exactly. <laughs> Rob. Thanks, Rob. Um, you know the, the effect of the bit liabilities, as, as the slide tries to summarize in, in a snapshot, um, is really to create again these outbound payments, whether potentially from a mark, mark-to-market. Um, uh, adjustments that results in a deduction from a US standpoint. If you qualify from as a US taxpayer, um, it means that effectively your instrument is taken out of the pool of the bad payments, of the base erosion payments. Uh, and in order to qualify, there are you know a number of things that the tax department typically looks at, effectively trying to mimic what a true uh, bank is, is, is effectively um, you know, in substance doing. With respect to the intra-group transaction, um, now in that conversation, what's important is you know where do you locate, for example, um, the treasury functions mm-hmm. and some aspects of the arrangement that allows the internal derivative to be put in place, and obviously the contracts, uh, the consequences around you know the movement of cash, the mark-to-market the accounting, as well as the tax. So all these is an, an important, I would say, um, convergence of interest where the interest in the cash and the treasury aspects may well converge with the interest of the tax department as a whole.
1: I mean, a classic fact pattern in this kind of scenario is a lot of companies just have their U.S. Topco yep. hedge on behalf of the world, right. and then they get the risk in the right spot by entering into either they do it on behalf of their affiliates we can debate about how well that works. <laughs> or they do actual back-to-back trades to get the trade the income in the right place, not just for US tax purposes, but also for um, financial statement hedge accounting as well. Um, you can see by our diagram, it's a it's a micro thing, but it actually has a macro-sized impact. If you are close to the line for having a potential liability under this minimum tax, and you're doing those transactions through your US Topco, who does not utilize a mark-to-market method from a US tax standpoint the gross outbound payments are taken into account for that minimum tax. If I tweak my structure slightly by forming a U.S. Treasury Center or a U.S. in-house bank to do those transactions, I make all that go away. So there's some very macro themes that can be addressed by very micro changes that can kind of reduce pressure and create opportunities.
4: Micro changes that are yet substantial changes. Absolutely.
1: I say it's micro and Rob is doing the 47 different accounts (laughs) that need to be set up and the banking relationships that need to change. Uh, Rob, when you talk to clients, what do you think from the treasurer's point of view are the top priorities on this list?
3: Uh, so it certainly depends on some of the specific companies, but, you know, the the top one is a hot topic at the moment around cash and, and banking optimization. And it's a combination of a cost outplay. It's also a risk play in terms of making sure I'm working with the right banking partners and don't have too much concentration risk. Because a lot has happened over the last, you know, three, five, seven years or so around that topic. Um, and there's a lot of things that are related to fraud and cyber types of activities that you kind of have to have your basic cash and banking buttoned up well, but it needs to be a great foundation. You have to do a little bit of share of the wallet, so you don't want to really squeeze some of the banks too hard. But cash and banking optimization it'll, you know, is a, uh, one of the top priorities for, for a lot of companies. Hand in hand, now different treasury organizations have some or you know, uh, or a lot of responsibility around working capital. So again, Treasury cares most of the time about, you know, the cash aspect of the balance sheet, and then the funding, certain aspects of the liability side of the balance sheet, and some of the working capital aspects has been diffused across the organization, part of it shared services, parts with the divisions, but now you see more and more Treasury organizations being the steward of all short-term capital, because guess what? You're the one that's funding it, right? right? And you should be setting up what those economic terms and arrangements should look like. So it's amazing how many more treasury organizations in the last three years have been looking at it, and it's coming down from the top of the house because it's free money. It's your cash that's sitting on your balance sheet, or it's capital sitting on the balance sheet that's being underutilized, right? So again, treasury has a vested interest in getting access to that cash flow. So that's another tremendously hot topic. And then again, the digital treasury, some organizations, this is their priority because they've already done one or, one and two already. Um, but the whole pressure around better leveraging technology, because most treasury organizations you know, are 20 to 30 people. You know, some are certainly larger than that and quite a few smaller, but there's not a lot of people to handle billions and billions of dollars of transactions that are flowing around the organization and tens of thousands, Right. So you have to leverage technology, but there's new technologies like artificial intelligence, RPA, blockchain that people are trying to better you know, leverage. And frankly, and then last would be dealing with tax reform because I'm going to deal with it based on what tax tells me to. Or maybe I see some silver lining. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get a boatload of cash. Right.
2: I'm going to do the share repurchase <laughs> right. program right.
3: Yeah. or I'm going to fund that pension p- plan.
2: Well, right. and to your, to your point on that, Rob, I think it's worth, you know, I think for folks who are with companies, uh, this will very much sound like an intuitively obvious statement, but you know, when the CFO wants to talk to somebody about cash optimization or working capital management or things like that, uh, they're gonna talk to the treasurer, right? That's the first place they're gonna go. When the CFO wants to talk about tax reform, they're gonna go to the tax director. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, if you're the treasurer, what are the things that are, you know not to be too crass about it, gonna get you fired? <laughs> It's not going to be, oh, I didn't fully internalize tax reform or get you promoted. That's a better way to say it, Rob. Right. Exactly. Uh, It's not going to be, well, I didn't fully internalize all the details of tax reform as the treasurer. Right. You're focused on all these other issues. You have to be. Right. And so it's really got to be on the tax department to get to the treasury guys and engage in that dialogue because it's not naturally going to happen otherwise.
3: Yeah. And I think one way of doing it is just making them well informed, the treasury group well informed about the upside. And almost push the compliance aspect away, just, yep. you know, because yep. there is quite a bit of upside or potential implications that they may not have to do anything in the next three to six months, but you probably should think about some items and maybe you revisit it quarterly, semi-annually, right, as part of the strategic planning process. Yep.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.